I invite you to turn in your Bibles to another prophet. I know you heard from a prophet this morning, Zephaniah. This evening, we hear from Isaiah chapter 63. We have at Ontario United Reformed Church, we've been going through the book of Isaiah beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, we're nearly coming to an end. Um, And so here this evening, I have the privilege to share with you this strong, powerful word from Isaiah chapter 63. But before we hear God's word read, let us pray and ask for the Spirit's illumination. Let us pray. O Spirit of God, we come before you now and acknowledge that this word that is open before us was inspired by you, breathed out by our very God for our edification. And yet, O Lord, we acknowledge as well that apart from the Spirit's work in our hearts, that we cannot rightly understand or receive this word for us. And so we ask, O Holy Spirit, quicken and illuminate our hearts that we might rightly see the truths therein and also that we might come to a deeper faith in Jesus Christ and a comfort in his return as we find here described for us in this passage as he comes back for his redeemed ones. Lord, be at work in the hearts of each and every one of us. Give us attentive minds to meditate on your word this evening. We ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture passage before us is Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1 to 6. Let us give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to say, Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments, and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, some of you might be familiar with this series, Marvel's The Agenda, uh, the Avengers. Some of you perhaps have watched these movies, perhaps especially if you have kids. They have been a huge hit worldwide. These movies, what are they about? They're about an organization composed of super-powered individuals that are described as the heroes of the Earth, the heroes, uh, the mightiest heroes of Earth. And they're committed to the world's protection from a variety of different threats. So successful has a series been that it is the sixth highest grossing film series of all time. The movies have made around $40 billion since 2008 when the first movie came out. And so clearly, 
people from around the world like the concept of Avengers. People like the idea of powerful heroes showing up that are committed to defeating evil. And we like this in real life too, right? For example, when somebody rises up to stop evil in its tracks, like an ordinary hero who might tackle and wrestle a gunman down and stop him from destroying life. We champion that kind of hero in the face of evil. Our hearts cry out for justice. When we see evil, we want somebody to bring justice and to protect us and our loved ones from that evil. And that is one of the reasons why it seems billions of people pay lots and lots of money to go watch movies like The Avengers. Now, this passage before us, it is about an Avenger. Here we find no organization or team of Avengers. No, rather, we find the sole Avenger who promises to bring full justice and put an end to all evil when he returns. We'll consider three points this evening as we look at this passage. First, our cringe. Secondly, the cross. And thirdly, his coming. So first, our cringe. Maybe you've heard this expression, that's cringe. It's quite popular as an expression, especially amongst the youth. It's used when something makes them feel embarrassed or uncomfortable just by hearing it or seeing it. And they say, that's cringe. Maybe that's how you felt when you heard this passage, read about the wrath of God. Maybe you even said to yourself, ooh, that's cringe. Author Fleming Rutledge says it makes many people queasy nowadays to talk about the wrath of God. Now, why is that? Why does the wrath of God make us feel uneasy? Why do we cringe before the wrath of God? Well, I think it's because we believe that God might be harsh or severe in his judgment. But the only reason that we would come to that conclusion is that we have turned a blind eye to some evil. We don't see exactly how dark the evil is in our own society and how bad it really is, even in our own hearts. We convince ourselves that our own evil is not that bad and definitely not deserving of wrath. Now, we can all see out in the world and find some people that we would say, oh, they are evil and deplorable people, and they deserve to be punished. At the same time, we look at our own evil tendencies and we think, well, those are acceptable. We think some people are really bad and they deserve punishment, but I deserve mercy. Hmm. And this is why we cringe at the wrath of God against sinners. But here's the reality that we ignore, that we are all deserving of God's wrath. Yes, each and every one of us. We find that in the book of Romans, for example, where Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So all of us are guilty of contributing to evil that we see in society. All of us are deserving of God's righteous anger. It's true that some people deserve a greater measure of punishment for doing greater acts of evil, but all of us deserve to be punished for our crimes against God's holiness. For to one degree or another, we all lie, we all cheat, 
we all steal, we all harm, we all neglect, and we all self-indulge to one degree or another. And not only that, there is much good that we should do that we leave undone. Why? Because often we are selfish and we don't want to lift a finger to help other people. So I want us to see this, that we cringe at the wrath of God for the wrong reason. What should make us cringe is the idea of a God that doesn't care about evil. The idea that a God could exist that sees great evil in the world and just ignores it, that is cringe-worthy. Think of this. Could you respect someone who witnessed firsthand a genocide of an entire people and didn't even care about it? Not at all. We wouldn't respect that person. Then why do we cringe at the wrath of the one who witnesses every evil thought and intention of the human heart and every deed done? You see, God's wrath means, in fact, that he deeply cares about the evil that is done by humans because he loves his creation, especially humanity. His anger against all evil is evidence in, act in actuality, is evidence of his love for all that which is good, beautiful, and true. Pastor Timothy Keller writes this. He says, the anger of God is ultimately about love. So the love of God will often express itself in anger. Another author explains it this way. Think of how we feel. Think of how you feel. When you see someone you love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships, when you see someone ruining their life by going down the wrong path, how do you feel? Do you respond with benign tolerance? You just sit back with apathy? No, not at all. We respond with anger towards the lies and the evil that is destroying the person that we love. And so this author writes, real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. And if I, a flawed narcissist, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. So I want us to see that anger is not the opposite of love. Rather, hateful indifference is the opposite of love. Therefore, you can't have a God of love who turns a blind eye to evil in the world. God cannot love his creation and be indifferent and passive about the evil that is destroying it. If God truly loves his creation and his own beloved people, then God must arise with painful anger to put an end to all the evil that destroys his creation and his people. And so God's wrath shouldn't make us cringe because a God of love must be a God of wrath. And that's exactly what the Bible reveals to us. Isaiah, as you know, if you've read Isaiah, he previously shows us in especially chapter 53, the suffering servant who is gentle and lowly of heart, clothed in humility, clothed in salvation. But here he shows us that he is also the anointed conqueror, clothed in mighty splendor. The Bible reveals to us the God who is both holy in love and holy in fury. And where do we find this God of holy love and holy fury most clearly reveal himself in the Bible and in human history? 
what is on the cross of Calvary, the cross of Christ. So that's our second point. Interestingly, there is an old motif in Christian theology and iconography that is tied to this passage in Isaiah chapter 63. It's called the mystic winepress. And so in cathedrals, ancient ones, there are these pictures that depict Jesus Christ standing in a winepress where Christ himself becomes the grapes in the press. We find that the very one who promises at the end of the age to gather up all peoples and tread upon them in his fury and his wrath is the same one who was trodden upon for us on the cross. The one who promises to judge the nations for their evil is the one who spilled his lifeblood when he was pressed out on the cross for us sinners. Now, this idea of the mystic wine press comes from the 4th century theologian Augustine of Hippo. When he preached on this passage from Isaiah, he said that Christ was the first grape who stepped into the wine press ready for the pressing. And then later in the 6th century, Gregory the Great said this, Christ has trodden the wine press alone in which he himself was pressed. For with his own strength, he patiently overcame suffering. And so what's the point? The point is this, that at the cross of Christ, we find God's holy love and his holy fury meet together. When Jesus metaphorically stepped into the winepress of God's wrath for us. And when we realize and remember that Jesus is God himself, we find that nobody can claim that God treats evil and sin as trivial things. The cross of Jesus keeps us from thinking that God is mainly holy with a bit of love or mainly loving with a bit of holiness. No, in Jesus we find God who became man, who was trodden upon by humans, by his own divine wrath. And we see there his holy love and his holy fury met together perfectly on the cross. When Jesus had his last meal with his disciples before he went to the cross, he told them that the cup of wine was in his blood. And he was basically saying to his followers, I am entering the wine press of God's wrath for you. I will be pressed out. And my lifeblood will splash out for you. Take, this is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he enter into the winepress of God's wrath? Well, Jesus, the righteous one, went to the cross in order to suffer the punishment that we all deserve, as we earlier saw. He went to the cross, as it says here, speaking righteousness, mighty to save. God incarnate went to be nailed and hanged on the tree in order to pour out his lifeblood so that justice would be served. God's holy anger and righteous fury would be poured out upon Jesus so that also his love and forgiveness would be extended to us. And we saw this a few weeks back in our evening service in our exposition of 1 John 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, which says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. A big word, propitiation, it refers to a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. And so a propitiation is a substitutionary 
sacrifice. It takes the punishment on behalf of the guilty party, thereby satisfying divine justice and also forgiving the guilty party. And that is what Jesus is for us, one who absorbed all of God's righteous anger for us in order to forgive us so that God would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so we find that at the cross, God proved he is both love and justice. And that means that God is willing to forgive any sinner who calls upon Jesus' name. But he does not do that at the expense of justice. No, God can't just forgive wrongdoing without punishing evil. For God to be both good and loving, he must be just. He can't just sweep evil under a rug. If God did that, he would be hatefully indifferent towards evil, which would make God himself evil. But here we find that God is not indifferent to evil. And at the cross of Christ, he proved it. God was so committed to his furious vengeance against evil that in order to forgive and redeem some, he was willing to take that punishment upon himself for us. You've probably seen those yellow stickers on the back of people's cars that say, don't tread on me. Maybe someone has a sticker in, in, in here on their car. Well, strikingly, the Son of God came basically saying, tread on me. He was willing to be trodden upon as a man by the Jews, by the Romans, and by the divine wrath of God himself. He came to give us the good wine his salvation, the cup of blessing that we bless by pouring out his lifeblood on the cross for us. And so when you see by faith Jesus on the cross and you think about how he entered into the winepress of God's wrath for us, our cringe before the wrath of God should totally disappear. All uneasiness about God's anger against evil is alleviated by the cross of Jesus when we rightly see it by faith, because there we see how committed God is both to his love and his holiness, to forgiveness and justice, to mercy and wrath. The cross of Christ, rightly understood, should make us ashamed, ashamed for thinking God's wrath is cringe. It's not cringe. The cross is beautiful. Rather, what happened on the cross is pure beauty, love, and holiness meeting perfectly together, expressed in the person of Jesus, dying under divine wrath and sustained there by divine love for his own. There's nothing so beautiful, so true, and good as Jesus upon that cross, dying to redeem guilty sinners like you and like me. And why do we believe this to be true? Well, because Jesus did not just enter into that winepress, he did not just die on the cross, but three days later he rose again from the dead. And I bring you the good news that he is alive and well today, even now, speaking in righteousness, still mighty to save. But as we come before this Jesus presented in this text, we find the imperative to decide how we stand before Jesus, what our relationship is with him. Because as surely as he entered in that wine press as a grape and was trodden upon to redeem, so surely will he come again. And when he returns, he will be the one doing the treading, as this text describes. 
That leads us to our third and final point, his coming. I'm not sure if you notice as we read it, but this passage is dramatic. Not only because of the vivid descriptive imagery, but also there's suspense in what Isaiah is describing here because there's this dialogue between Isaiah as a narrator and Christ, whom he sees coming towards him. Isaiah asks, who is this who comes? Then Isaiah describes the man he sees. He's coming towards Isaiah. He's strong. He's marching with vigor. He's dressed for action in splendid apparel, and he's covered in blood. It reminds me of those scenes in action movies, you know, those slow motion scenes where the hero is running away after a battle and it starts to go slow motion and then behind them with the epic music, right? Behind the hero, there's a, usually a big explosion, right? You can almost see it in every action movie. Well, that's sort of the kind of description that Isaiah gives us of Jesus. It is epic. We've seen Jesus as the suffering servant earlier in Isaiah, gentle and lowly. But don't forget that he is also the Lion of Judah. And as C.S. Lewis wrote about the Lion Aslan, who represents Jesus symbolically in his books, he said, is he safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good and he is king. And so here we find Jesus, our king. He's not safe. But he is good. He is the risen king who is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And there's something in this text that I want to draw our attention to. This text emphasizes that his coming is one in solitude. Notice in verses 4 through 6 that Christ speaks about his solitude. He has no team. He has no organization of avengers. No, he is the sole avenger. Just as there was nobody to help him in his work of salvation, so too in his work of judgment there will be none to help him when he returns. And why? Because nobody else is worthy to judge the nations. As we saw earlier, nobody else is righteous. We are all deserving of being crushed like grapes in the winepress of God's wrath. And so who are we to go around crushing others for their crimes against God and humanity. Only Jesus is worthy to bring that final judgment. And so only Jesus will judge the living and the dead on the last day. And know this for yourself, that nobody else is going to judge you. No, not your family, not your friends, but Jesus. Jesus will judge you. And so, again, get right with God through the person and work of Jesus Make sure that you are in a right standing before God by faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the vine who was cut down and trodden upon in the winepress of God's wrath on the cross, Jesus alone is worthy to tread this winepress of God's wrath on the last day. And now in our passage, the soul avenger speaks as one who has already trodden the winepress. This vision here is of Jesus coming back after his second coming. He shall come again, it is certain. And for what purpose? Look at verse 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. It's perhaps better translated here, the year of my redeemed had come. And what this means is that Jesus is coming back. His second coming is for the sake of his redeemed ones, 
he comes back to bring justice to all the earth and to vindicate his redeemed people, those whom he bought with his precious blood. And he will bring full and final justice. Every wrong will be made right and every evil deed, for every evil deed, Jesus will set and determine the appropriate just punishment. The king who is trodden upon is coming back to do the treading. And in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, we are told about Jesus' second coming, and John picks up this same motif of the winepress of God's wrath. Just listen to this description. He says, again in Revelation 19, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, the white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As we've listened to this passage from Isaiah, I trust that God has worked on your hearts this evening through his word, and I hope that the cross of Christ has turned your cringe before his wrath into admiration before his love and his fury. And I pray and implore you that you would turn away from your sins to trust in Jesus with all your heart and find him now by faith while he is still mighty to save lest you find him in his second coming, mighty in vengeance, as is described here for us in this passage. I'd like to close with the words that we sang earlier from Psalm 2, the very end, where it says this, Therefore, kings, be wise, be warned. Rulers of the earth, give ear. Come with awe and serve the Lord. Mingle joy with trembling fear. Kiss the sun, his anger turn, lest you perish in the way for his wrath will quickly burn. All who trust in him, blessed are they. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we have come before this passage which reveals to us the Lion of Judah, the conquering king who is coming to judge the living and the dead. And yet we also rejoice that he is the one who willingly stepped into the winepress the wrath of God for us, that all of the anger and wrath that you had stored up against us for our sins was poured, up, poured out upon Jesus in our place on the cross. And he willingly suffered and died there to spare us from his coming wrath. And Lord, we trust that that is a blessed gift that we receive by faith alone in Christ alone. And truly, as Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Lord, if there is any here tonight who has not yet taken refuge by faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, we ask that you would work upon their heart, even now, to draw them close to you, that they too might confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their heart that you raised him from the dead and that he is coming back and that for all who trust in him, we will enter into your glory forevermore by grace through his perfect merits for us. 
Lord, work in our hearts. Give us greater measures of faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.